Are you ready, Ma? I'm ready, Erin. Let's go. Let's go to an undetermined city that undetermined I believe is New Undetermined city? Well, I guess it was Times Square, yes? That is New York City. But it was 1957 New York City, so I did it right. So that was that was like Times Square, yes? I think so. I thought I saw the Flatiron building at one point. Well, we think it was. So we're going with it. It totally is New York City. Yeah, because of all the press. Yeah. This this story is about the press and the and the cutthroatness of the press and uh, it and the cutthroatness uh, of the press <laughs> and a few days before election day how you can't get the truth unless you do a lot of research and yeah your research has to be in truth laden places and good luck finding that the only truth look I've said it before, I've said it again, and I'm not the first one that came up with this. But here's just a little bit of wisdom. Ma, what's the answer to every question? Follow the fucking money. Money. Money is the answer. Every question that you have in your life, why money? Money. How come money? Money. Who money? Money. Yes, there you go. So... And and it was as it is in 2018, so it was in 1957. Correct, Amundo. Black and white film. The sweet smell of success. Sweet smell of success. The particulars, please. Whilst I drink. Directed by Alexander McKendrick. He was also did whiskey galore. The Lady Killers, The Man in the White Suit. Wait, The Lady Killers from from not that long ago? I'm going to say no, but I'm going to say that it was probably a remake of this guy's The Lady Killers. Got it. Seeing as how this man was a director in 1957. I was five years old. Okay, move on. Yeah, so he's, if he's alive, he's uh, old. Probably living with me. <laughs> oh, it was written by Alexander McKendrick, Clifford Odette, who he was a playwright. Um, he was supposed to be the next Eugene O'Neill. Oh, um, he wrote a lot of left-leaning plays, and I think as a result. He got swept up in the whole House of Un-Americans activities. McCarthiness. Yeah. And so, uh, but he still had a great career and he influenced like Paddy Krzyzewski, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the, all the playwrights that aren't Eugene O'Neill that you know about now. This well, guy. Okay, then. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and also Ernest Lehman. Now, this guy, Ernest Lehman, uh, a six-time Oscar nominee. Whoa. But he never won. Okay. But he was, I believe, given an honorary Oscar. Because mm-hmm. listen to some of the films that this guy had to do with. What, did, what, what was it he had to do with this film? 
He was the writer, and it was also was based okay. on it was based on the novelletta that he wrote, which means a small novel. It was a small novel. It first appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine, mm-hmm. and so he uh, wrote it, and then he got sick. And he had to leave the production before the script was completed. And that's when Odette's and McKendrick came in. Okay. But anyways, let me get... This is... uh, And also, Odette's and McKendrick changed a lot, apparently. But... Because listen to what old layman did. I would have... Okay. I might want to go read this. Um, Sabrina. (gasps) The Ridge? Yeah. Somebody... Somebody up there likes me. Okay. The King and I. Hello. North by Northwest. <gasps> Yet to be done by the bushes. Gone with the bushes. Oh, uh, West Side Story. Yo. The Sound of Music. <gasps> Hello, Dolly. And there wasn't a musical note in it. Well, there was. Go on. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? This Ooh. man... Why did you change anything is what I want to know. Yeah. This bonafide. guy. This guy. I mean, talk about bona fides. Dang. The music by Elmore Bernstein. He did The Magnificent Seven, The Ten Commandments, Airplane, Ghostbusters, Stripes, My Left Foot, Bringing Out the Dead, Far From Heaven. This guy. Related to Leonard? Not necessarily. That's like a Jones. <laughs> okay. Related to the bears? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Stan and what's her name? Okay, got it. <laughs> that, for those of you who didn't get that joke, it was pretty freaking funny. <laughs> I'm picturing it in my head. The Bear State Bears book when Uncle... Elmer comes and they're like, what do film composers do? <laughs> and he's in his pencil side. Pencil I'm pretty suit. sure there's a me too in there. Okay. All right. The director of photography, James Wong Howe. He's a Chinese American. He got the That's Oscar for the Rose Tattoo and HUD. HUD? Mm-hmm. Back to our Paul Newman days. They it's, will be coming again. And I have trivia involving uh, James Wong Howe. Because I'm I'm starting to give out MVPs. And the MVP of this film Ooh. is James Wong Howe. What is it he did again? He's the director film? of photography. Okay. Oh, I can't wait to hear some of your takes. Okay. Yes. Starring... Uh, Burt Lancaster. Yes. Remember he was in The Killers. He played the Swede. We did that movie. So we did a Burt Lancaster movie. Yeah. He was in The Birdman of Alcatraz. Yeah. Elmer Gantry. Apparently we're going to have to do that because he won like all these awards for that. Yeah. The Rose Tattoo. From Here to Eternity. Yeah, we're going to have to do that one, too. And he was also Jim Thorpe in Jim Thorpe All-American. That's true. Jim Thorpe was a uh, first American. He was. He was here before 
all these lily white pasty people like me. Yeah. And uh, he got the old uh, pasty white people treatment. And Jim Thorpe, I mean, his people are having trouble voting because they can't um, prove residency. Well, Ma, don't worry. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a little history lesson at the at the end of this in my trivia. Okay. I went down a rabbit hole. That's my girl. That's what she does. Also starring Tony Curtis. Yes, who somebody called eyelashes in the film, and I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> hey, eyelashes. She was in Some Like It Hot. Oh, one of our faves. He was in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Remember? He he wasn't in it. You didn't see him, but he was the actor on the telephone. He was on the telephone. Mm-hmm. And he was in The Defiant Ones. And he... Also, Jamie Lee Curtis's daddy. Yes. Father of Jamie Lee Curtis. He said to the studio, I will not do this film unless you cast Sidney Poitier. Hello. Mm -hmm. Um, Alrighty then. Also, Susan Harrison. She was uh, the ballerina in that famous Twilight Zone episode, Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And scares me. That are the those are the particulars. Well done. Well done. Well, let's go to New York City. It's a black and white joint. It is uh, starts with jazz music. Everybody enjoys jazz music. Not really, but I do. And we see a bunch of newspapers thrown onto a pavement. And we see Tony Curtis buying the newspaper. And he's looking for J.J. Hunsucker's article. And this isn't Backlot Studio Hollywood, New York City. This is shot on location, New York City. Ooh, 1957. Yeah. When I, he re- okay, go ahead. When I was watching it, I was thinking, is this one of the first films that they... Well, I know that they had done it before, but I liked that it was in there. You were yeah. in these places. I, I was. I liked, like, yeah, that's what that looked like in the 50s. You would just yeah, go it's up. it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tony Curtis buys the paper. He looks at it. He's disgusted. He throws it away. His name is Sidney Falco. And he's a publicist. And it's not going great for our old man, Sid the Kid. No, eyelashes is not doing well in this film. So we go to his office, which much like the verdict... Is also his where his residence, because the back room is his bedroom. Sally is his secretary, but she is quite um, made up to become a plain Jane type character. Um, Hunsecker wants Falco to get bad publicity for his sister's girl boyfriend. Oh, sorry, people. This was fifty-seven. It was his sister's boyfriend. <laughs> Yeah, so what's his face? Falco has all his clients. His clients are doing plays, trying to write things, and they want to get into the column. They want to get their name out there, get heard and be seen. And 
old JJ Huntsucker or whatever his name is, he I'm gonna just call him JJ. Yeah, I called him JJ the rest of the time. He's basically he's basically TMZ, right? He's Harvey Levin. Yes. He in but in you know these times in the fifties, it's all column. He's got a daily syndicated column, and it, it's TMZ, and it says tells all the gossip and stuff. And you know people want their name dropped in there. They don't they don't want it to be horrible things about them, but they want to be mentioned in his column because everyone reads it. And if everyone reads it, then everyone knows who you are. And if people know who you are, then you can get hired. And if you can get hired, what happens? Follow the money. Money. Again, the answer to every question is money. So this Falco guy, he's got no money. He needs to get his greens up. He needs to start fertilizing them seeds. And you know how bad it is because he doesn't even take his coat. It's winter in New York and and because he, he doesn't want to have to pay the tip at the coat check. And in my mind, though, I'm, I'm not mad at that. I wasn't mad at I'm that either. I'm not mad at that. I'm like, this Pretty guy. Pretty freaking genius. Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis. This is why you're a star, my friend. Eyelashes. So he, he, he needs to go to, to, you know, the place. And he needs to tell, uh, because he's already gotten a threatening call from one of his clients. They called up and they said, hey, hey, Eddie, another column and my name's not in it. What am I paying you for? So, Only they could say, said Sydney because his name is Sydney. Right, Sydney. So then Sydney's like, I gotta go, I gotta go talk to this JJ guy. So he goes to the club. JJ's holding court. It's just the scene. First, we meet a cigarette girl. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, Her God. name is not Muriel. Uh, yeah. Her name is actually Sally, I believe. Sally. And right. Sally is obviously smitten. She's the one who calls him eyelashes. Mm-hmm. And um, he just kind of ignores her. But he does get tips from her. Okay. And, and at this point, I'm going to put a caveat in here. Aaron's going to need to help out because I was watching this last night after I worked a full day, which doesn't happen much anymore. And I had already been to happy hour. And so um, you're going to need to fill in a lot of holes. Don't worry, Ma. I got you because I had to do an awful lot of rewinding. Okay, because I didn't even rewind because then there were other extenuating circumstances happening. And so I I already knew that you were lukewarm on this film when I went in. Okay, Okay, and there we go. I did it. Yeah. So he runs into Frank, who happens to be his ankle. Uncle. <laughs> that is ankle. Because he doesn't have cankles. All right. All right. He's- time out. At this point, because I'm going to let the viewers in on my watching experience. So at this point, I'm the whole time I'm scanning the background because, what, again, when when. When Eddie went into the New York, and I'm like, man, this is New York City. This is the streets. This is 1957. Instantly, my head goes into, where are the black people? And then I'm like, ah. 1957. Right. And I'm sitting down, and I say to myself, am I going to need to get up to get a piece of paper so that I can keep track of how many POCs are in this film? 
Or am nope. I safe to just sit on my ass here? Because <laughs> there's ass none. sitting is safe. So again, fifty-seven. Yeah. So since that beginning part till about now, I'm sitting on my ass, and then in the background, I'm scanning, and I see a person of color in the bar in the black background as a it's member. It's a jazz club. But this no, this was he was um. He wasn't a, a like participating. He was no. in the help. So then I was like, "This is 1957," and I had to pause it, get off my ass, and get a piece of paper because I was like, "Yep, I'm gonna need. This is how I'm gonna need to keep track." Okay, glad you did because I didn't. I did. I did because I think it's important that you're because we are all used to watching this, yes. but yet. What, what and there it, are people who who appreciate our POC count. It's a it's something that I always did my entire life, but I didn't realize that other people didn't do it. So some that's people why we do, do it, it in reverse. I'm just saying, in some circumstances. <laughs> well, some people have the entire film catalog to look yeah, at and be I'm like, "I'm saying, when you're at the Swahili Club, you are doing the POW." <laughs> which can be quite limiting. So I totally get it. I understand. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Okay. So he runs in. uh, So Sidney Falco, not Edie, runs into his uncle, who is Frank somebody. And then we see Steve, the guitar player. Yes. And the drummer is... Chico Hamilton. Yeah, so were they like a real quartet or something? Well, everyone except for the guitar player, who's the actor, but they were the Chico Hamilton Quartet. And Chico Hamilton played with Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Lena Horne. I mean, he was a bona fide drummer. Yeah. And I just want to throw in here, Steve was like from Car 15. For where are you or Dragnet? I think he was in Dragnet, and I think Adam Twelve or something. Like one of those types of shows. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, I remember him from Dragnet. I think. Yeah. Book him, Dano. Was he Dano? I see, don't know. I didn't I do that know. research. But yeah. anyway, you recognize him. He would be like now. Um. Like when the guy from Perfect Stranger shows up in the stuff. Either one of those mm-hmm. the guys. The Lynn mm-hmm. Baker and the Bronson Pinchot. You're like, ah, Perfect Strangers. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, blonde and white. And he's playing the guitar. And there's there's talk that he's done with J.J.'s sister. So this is the first time we're introduced to the character of J.J. J.J. Hunsuckers, remember, he's like the big columnist. Yeah. His sister is Susie. Yeah, and so J.J. doesn't want his sister going out with this. The the cleanest cut musician I've ever seen in my life. Right. This like, guy. Like, he's Teflon. Cocaine would just, just drop off of him. It wouldn't, it wouldn't in, enter his biosphere. If if this movie was remade, he would be like a a young district attorney 
who is mm-hmm. just he he's like he's just Mr. He's Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but he's up there blonde and playing a guitar. Totally clean cut, like the new Bachelor who is a virgin at 30-something years old. If you believe that. <laughs> okay, so then the, um, the, the Steve guitar player goes out in the alley and Susie, JJ's sister... Is out in the alley. Well, because so Sydney's gone to the club. He runs into his uncle, who is managing the guitar player, whose last name is Dallas. I forget his first Steve name. Dallas. Steve Dallas. Exactly. And he goes up to him. He's like, "Yo, uncle, what up? Um, I thought you said that he, that Steve and that girl are no longer. Then you put the right. kibosh on that, and he's like." What do you want from me? What do you? I, I don't. Uh, I don't know anything. And he's like, well, apparently they're. You know, he's like, well, to the best of my knowledge, they aren't together. They're through. They're finito. And then Sydney says, um, then why is she back in the alley waiting for him? And then the other guy gets mad at Sydney, and he's like, why if you weren't my sister's son? And that's the kind of relationship they have. Mm-hmm. And Susie always has on this fur coat. Yes. That's important for later. Okay, oh, so they okay. are um, in the alley, and she says to him, I'll try to make you a good wife. Okay, at which point in my head, I'm thinking, Tony Curtis, I've seen him on the screen in this movie. I get why Tony Curtis, I get why he's in this movie. I get why he was casted and I get why he became a star. Even though he's playing this character that you don't very, he he doesn't have any scruples. There's still this charming twinkle in this man's eye. I like him. And those eyelashes. He's got great eyelashes. He's easy on the eyes. He's got a great personality. You're just mm-hmm. like you just like him. He he isn't so good looking that you're like ah oh, he's probably an asshole in real life. He's not so good looking that you'd put your I don't know you might put your ice cream cone in your purse if you saw him. In May, like probably in real life because he has a very easygoing, like he can make fun of himself vibe. Yeah, and I'm like I like that, and yeah. we've already seen met JJ right, or have we not? No, we no, haven't met JJ. We haven't yet. met him. It's just like okay. this this big aura. Okay, so anyway, we have the Tony Curtis. I'm like, I get why Tony Curtis is a star. Let me see. Okay, this is obviously the female lead in this movie starring Tony Curtis. So this is a pretty big part. Mm-hmm. Who is this young woman? Because I have not heard, heard her name. Her. Yeah, her name did not pop out at me. And no. is it because she was fantastic and then she left Hollywood or maybe it was a tragedy story or maybe she turned her back. Like, what was it? She was a Natalie Woodish person. Yes. Or was she just not very good at acting? Oh. Did she just not have it? And so in her first scene, I concluded that the reason I didn't know this, this woman's name, I didn't recognize it from other films, other roles, she just doesn't have it yeah that's how i felt too i was like oh man how can someone have can someone have a wet blanket as an on-screen personality 
because she is just she is cornflakes that have been left in a bowl of cereal overnight i mean wow i was gonna say for an hour but overnight like like if natalie would have had this role i mean the role is supposed to be like a doormat but but there's 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 a piece of there's a pop there's a something there's there's something in there that you want to hold on to because that's the that screen persona that's a that screen persona that certain something that some act like and and it doesn't have anything to do with acting ability sometimes because some people are not very good actors but there's just something about their on-screen persona where you're, yeah, the you're camera just very forgiving. Something. You're just like, man, they just have that magic quality. And a lot of times, because in movies, a lot, of, almost everybody you see in a movie has that magic quality. So you really only appreciate it when you see someone who doesn't. And it's who not does, her yeah. fault. It's not like it's nothing that she did wrong. No, it's. It's completely fine. It's nothing personal. She just doesn't have that it. It's like a lens flare. Yeah, it's just something that it you makes know, you something like. Something just grabs you. Ah. Because this was this was a career making movie for her. Well. But it didn't. And Not- then and then also I say the same exact thing for Steve Dallas. You're like, oh, he was in Dragnet or he was in Adam 12. And I'm Which like, is yes. why he became Dragnet. Exactly. Because yeah. he didn't have that it. Although, he you didn't. know who he reminded me of, though? Of a guy Uh-oh. who does have that it, but like had the same kind of vibe going? Kyle Go. Chandler. Yeah. I was like... Oh, you are a Kyle Chandler without the Kyle Chandler itness, like without the lens yeah. flare. Yep, I like yeah. ah, very interesting. So we've recast this film with Natalie Wood, Wood and, Kyle and Kyle Chandler. Chandler, and you would have been so absorbed. But with this one, I mean, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis are both so overwhelming. You really needed two characters like that to pull off the rest of it. Well, okay. yeah. I mean, it's got flaws, in my opinion. Now, I did say, she, uh, Susie says to Steve, don't tell my brother, I want to tell him myself. And they are in love. The two of them are in love. And so these two people are in love in a um, TV show or a... Uh, uh, dare I say, Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> but you've got Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis on the other side. You gotta, you gotta up your game. Yeah, you can't be going... They basically are bringing... They're not even bringing a knife to a gunfight. They're bringing their, like, constitution. Or, like, yeah. like pa- or paper. They've got yeah. their, like, pen in their paper. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, hmm. But we are right. And it's like, yeah, but sometimes you got to knock somebody in the teeth. So then Falco comes out and talks to them. Now, a lot of times I'll say there's a lot of arguing going on. There was a lot of dialogue. I didn't quite keep up with all the Oh, but Ma, there are some, uh, the two MVPs. I already said the MVP of this is the director of photography. 
because it looks fantastic and it's shot fantastic. The yeah, second, I was surprised that it was the photographer, the director of photography, instead of the screenwriter, because there's some that's epic the monologues. Se- that's the second one. Is yeah. the dialogue in this film? There are some epic lines. I I should go back because I didn't. I had to put on the closed captioning at one point because I need. I was like, I need to read these lines. Oh, that's a good. There was idea. this one line where Sidney Falco was talking to his homely uh, secretary, and the secretary was trying to make him feel better, and Sidney Falco snapped back at him something about, "What do you you want to just." like something and, and like her meaty arms and I was like did he just call her meaty arms well she was not she was not slight of build no and I was she like she was Damn. not obese by any means but she did have meaty arms I, yeah, I, from a meaty arm person to another I I that I did pick up on that there yeah. was also um the cats in the bag and the bags in the river there's so There's many so good many quotes great, from this. Great lines from this. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so um, the both Steve and Susie are arguing with Falco about how Falco is snooping around them. Yeah, he they're in the back alley, and Steve is is getting indignant, and he's like, "Why, well, yeah, you ought to just." You're, sir, you're going to make me so mad that I'm going to have to pop you in your chin, but I don't want to pop you in your chin because I am a dignified jazz musician. And and we all know that, that I would have to put frozen peas on your hands and then you wouldn't be able to play your guitar. Uh-huh. And then they, they would fall into alcoholic alcoholism, but they would write some catchy ass songs. Somebody's going to die, then yeah. we have to cry, then or, we have to no. have singing. Actually, I take that back. The thing that's going to get Steve is that Steve is going to be right on the precipice of fame, and then the Beatle invasion is going to happen, and rock and roll is going to take off, and he's and he's like, but I, I just want to play this music, and they're like, yeah. no, bro, you just need to learn how to play these three chords. It's rock music, and he's like, no, he's like, and then some of his like other contemporaries do and they go on to like get in bands and be like the funk brothers and crazy studio musicians and they're growing their hair along and they're becoming doobie brothers and old Steve was just like but it's jazz man it's jazz man i got to i got to remain true to jazz oh, or yeah. it's queen saying we're not going to do disco oh they okay, would have so done disco cut- so well we cut to the cigarette girl and she's getting fired because of what she didn't do. So those of you who are younger than I, everyone else, um, back in the fifties, there were girls who walked around with, with like a tray uh, with a string attached to their neck and they would sell cigarettes and suchness and uh, as they walked through the club and so uh, they had to it was like it was like playgirl before playgirl became playgirls before playgirl bunnies became bunnies and so they would walk around and then there were gentlemen who were asking for favors and if you were a good cigar, a, a successful 
cigarette girl, you would you would probably indulge those favors for extra money. But this cigarette girl who was in love with eyelashes, Tony Curtis, didn't really want to give those extra sexual favors out. So she was getting fired because somebody very influential was at the club and she would not give him those extra favors. Man, me too. So she's talking me too. Yeah. She's talking with Sydney and Sydney's paying no she's like asking for help. I gotta I gotta keep this job. I got a kid. And Sydney is acting like he's paying attention to her because she gives him lots of tips, but he's actually paying attention to where Susie is. Yeah. And Sydney and Susie get in a cab together. So Somebody says to Sydney, JJ, we haven't met JJ yet. No. JJ makes you jump through burning hoops like a poodle. Ooh. Yeah. So um, I hope JJ likes Steve. The uh, Susie says, you know, I finally found somebody. I hope my brother will approve of him. At which point that just made me laugh. <laughs> like- right. Man, this well, guy's- plus, this is kind of, really, your brother has to approve? Yeah, this gets really weird. Really creepy. Nothing nothing actually comes of light, but you, you're looking at the, at the, the, the before story. But yeah, yeah, it's very old. Like, there's no definitive evidence, but you're just thinking, like, circumstantially. Like, wait a second. Why does this guy care so much? And why it's just r- real creep. Yeah. This just real kind of creepy vibes. Yeah, exactly. It's just a vibe, but it's like, like I wonder if the and then it made me think while I'm watching it. Well, actually, we're not there yet, so keep going. Okay, so Falco has to go to the Twenty One Club because he's looking for JJ Hunsecker. Yes. I mean, he's upset with J.J. Hunsucker for some reason. We don't know what it is. Well, we do know what it is. He's J.J. Hunsucker is deliberately in his columns not referencing any of Sidney Falco's clients. You are saying Hunsucker? I don't know. I'm calling him J.J. I said at the beginning right. in the disclaimer. Because it's actually spelled Hunsucker, which, you know, has less of a sucker vibe to it well you know when i was watching this it sounds like hunsucker i know and i went to school with a dude named hunsucker and i didn't have a problem with it until i you know hunsucker hun i don't know what his name is yeah okay so anyway falco is looking for hunsucker and evidently jj is in a private room of the club well he's he's the man he's in the room he's holding the club this is everybody is bowing to him and i'm gonna let you take it from here all right so this is boom here it is we see him and we instantly know that he is jj hunsucker Sunsecker. We know that he's JJ Lancaster. No, he's not. He's JJ Hunsucker. From now on, coming out of my mouth, he's JJ Lancaster. Just, just JJ. Or just JJ. But we see him and we know who he is immediately because there is just that it. Ah, oh, Bert mm-hmm. Lancaster. 
which when you don't have it, you don't want to be in a movie with somebody who does have it. Yes, which is instantly followed in my mind by Burt Lancaster. What are you doing in this role? Like, yeah. like physically, your choices that you are making are bold. didn't even bold. have a love interest in this. There is no love interest in just the way that he's acting. Other than his sister. Yeah. <sighs> he, that was me gagging. And he's lit. And also I was like, man, what's up with this lighting? This is very dramatic mood lighting. And this is old James. What was his name? The I don't MVP? know, but he he got your no lighting. James he Wong How. He did. And he I'm might have like, been number three look on at your this. list. The, no, he's number one. Low key lighting. This was used a lot in the film noir. He was lit. He, lit. he was lit. He was lit by a single key light over his head, which had his glasses. And those glasses were Burt Lancaster's personal brow glasses. Were they? Because mm-hmm. they were like... Um, what do you call those glasses? Malcolm X glasses? Malcolm X glasses. I call them Malcolm X glasses. Apparently, they're called, like, brow glasses. Because they have a, like, brow. They have a brow, but, and then they have the the the, the gold or silver yeah. rim at the bottom. But you're right. They are Malcolm X glasses. That's what you call them. Which cast uh, sh- just shadows upon his face. Giving him this eerie sort of look in the way that he's shot. Like, the camera's kind of, I think it's kind of low on him. So it gives him this, uh, just this this uh, look to him. And then he's also, behind the scenes tidbit, the director put a thin layer of Vaseline on his eyeglasses. So Burt Lancaster could not focus on anything. And that's why he had that weird blank, that gaze the entire film. That's why we have a film student. He couldn't see anything because I was very, got very into and preoccupied by the acting choices that Lancaster is making in this. I'm just like, but I loved it. But love is a bit harsh. I enjoyed it. But then... I didn't, in, there are parts of this movie that I enjoyed, but I did not enjoy the story. Yeah. I was just like, this? All of this is about this? Yeah. About the two wet blankets over there? Yeah. I don't the whole care story about that. revolves them. around the wet blankets. I, I'm like, I don't care about noodles. However, it's really about the, the, the ability of the press. And the dare I say media to influence you. Well, yeah, but they are timely, but it's so depressing. Uh, okay, go on. Yeah, of course. It's about money <laughs> because that's what it's all about. Everybody wants it and everybody will do whatever they can to get it. And guess what? It doesn't really it's a scam because it's only money because we all agreed that it's money. It actually has no value. Yeah. But anyway, so he's he's holding court. He, I think there's a senator there. There is a senator there. There's a woman who is supposed to be the young ingenue 
And I, I kind of wondered if she went on to be anything because she kind of, she had more of it than the wet blanket did. But she did, but but it wasn't a breakout role. No. So I'm like, and it was no, but sometimes it wasn't Brad Pitt in in Thumb and Louise. Yeah, but she's a woman in Hollywood. So how much behind the scenes, you know, for her getting a new casting role? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's just very interesting. She kind of she kind of reminded me of Janet Lee. At first, I was I was like, is that Janet Lee? And then I was like, no. But then I'm like, I bet Tony Curtis got to know that actress. <laughs> just say it. So just, it's just a scene where it basically establishes JJ as the king. Yeah, everybody wants his attention. Mm-hmm. And how he's able to read between the lines and he's able to put the pieces together. And he tries to, in this scene... Because uh, Cindy comes up and JJ's like, you know, you're nothing to me. He's ignoring him. He, he says, I gave you a, ta- to, a task to do and you did not do it. Therefore, we have nothing to discuss. Get out of my face. And so Cindy has to go on full on using all of his tricks in his bag to kind of come in and be like, give me one more chance. Sydney's job is to bring items to JJ that he can put in his column. And the only way he gets paid is if the items actually get in the column. Well, yeah, because he's got these because he's got people like he's got a writer that we kind of saw that was giving him crap. He's got the guy that's on the phone. He's got clients that pay him $100 a week. And that he's a publicist, and that's what publicists do. They go mm-hmm. out and they they talk to these writers and stuff, and they're like, you you ever wonder why, um, like TMZ and stuff, they know exactly where the Kardashians are, like what restaurant they're eating at. Because the Kardashians tell them right. Because somebody calls up and says, "Oh, hey, they're eating at so and so," and then they go out there, and lo and behold, there they are. They're eating at so and so. Yeah. So the purpose of this scene was to establish how um, JJ is the king of the world and that um, Sydney is trying to get any item that he can give to JJ published. We haven't found out yet that JJ and Sydney are are like friends from when they were little. Oh, they right? are. Yeah, that came up later. Oh, I completely missed that. Which is the only reason Sydney is even in JJ's orbit. I completely missed that. I just thought that was movies. Because I did wonder, if this guy's so such a down-on-his-luck publicist, how is he able... Is this just Tony Curtis having the moxie to just go up to, to JJ? No, they were friends from a long time ago. Which is why Sydney knows Susie so well. Oh. Which makes you think that maybe Sydney and Susie might have had a bit of a past. So Sydney leaves that club and he's going to the El Morocco, but he's talking to the police because yes. he has a good connection with the police and the police can always give him tips of where celebrities are or trouble that celebrities got into. Yes. And I have something on the police in my notes. 
the police guy, because the police guy is named Officer Kello, and he's based on real-life NYPD Eddie Egan, who was immortalized by Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. The French Connection. They're all the same character. Talk about a breakout role. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so then J.J. is talking about how he loves his dirty town, that um, Sydney promised him that they were the romance was going to break up, but you didn't do it. And um, J.J. wants them to break up, but doesn't want to be the cause of the breakup in Susie's eyes. Yeah. So uh, Falco is saying, I did something for you in the past. And I want you to know that the boy proposed to her and she's about to discuss it with you at breakfast. So do you have a plan? Yeah, because he's um, because, yeah, JJ's just like, whatever, like, you know what? And Eddie or Sydney says, hey, just so you know, you don't have as much time as you think the boy proposed to her. It's serious. Yeah. And so then he's like, oh, and he's like, yeah, it's serious. Now what are you going to do? I'm your best bet. And it's like, man, Tony Curtis, you're really good at your job. Yeah. Somebody says the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. Great line. I know. Now we're at another bar. We have a dude named Leo. And blackmail about Rita. Blackmail about Rita. Okay, we'll move on. Cigarette girl. Oh, so there's a dude named Leo, and there the cigarette girl Sally comes up, and she meets Leo's wife. Oh, I like that scene. There's this oh. woman, and she's eating, and oh, he's another newspaper guy. Yes, he is. He's another, and he's very nervous, and he's got, like, such, he's, like, it's perfect male pattern baldness. He's completely bald on his head, and he has the hair. He reminded me of the guy that died that was, um, what was his name? That guy that played, was it Frito? Fredo? In The Godfather. And he was in The Deer Hunter, and he was with Meryl Streep, and then he died really young, but he was a great actor. Okay. He did. Are you he, okay? Who me? Yeah, I heard something fall over. Uh, the, the people above me are moving in. I told you this. <gasps> oh, Heller. <laughs> yeah, there's gonna be noises and thumps. Okay, we can we can deal with that. Yeah. You know, remember that guy? He reminded me of him. So he was very kind of nervous and stuff. And his wife is going through, um, and she's big into horse racing. And he's another pub uh, writer, but he's obviously not on the level of JJ. And so he's JJ's competition. And uh, what's his face? Sydney is giving him, he gives him a piece of paper and it has information on it. And he basically, he's planning, he's giving him a tip. But this newspaper reporter guy, I believe he knows that he's JJ's buddy. So he's like, why are you giving me something to run? And then I think Sydney knows that this writer guy is stepping out on his wife, who is just sitting right here 
um, doing like Looking the, at the horse racing forms. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's trying to blackmail. He's basically like, I'm going to tell your wife about the cigarette girl, but I won't if you publish this um, story. And the guy doesn't right. want to publish the story because he knows that it, there has to be like it has to be fake because if it was real, he would be giving it to JJ. So Correct. and it's also about JJ's sister. So Correct. I guess it would be like if Harvey Levin's sister went to I don't like I like uh, Us Weekly and or ET Entertainment or Entertainment te- Television. Yeah. Anyways, so it's like that. It got like got complicated real fast. So the so Leo just tells the wife. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is what this is about. Mm -hmm. He's trying to blackmail me, and and the wife goes, "This is the first clean thing you've done in years." Yeah. So she's she's okay with it because he finally came clean about something she knew was going on along anyway. And she seemed, he seemed very nervous, Nelly, and she seemed like she was running the household. Yeah. And so she knew what was going on, but. Yeah. Yeah. And she just wanted him to say it because, like, he thought that he was keeping it a secret. It's like, no, you dumbass. She just wanted to see him, like, stand up for himself and stuff. So she was like, good job for standing up for yourself. So you're like, oh, man, those two. That's interesting. And I guess the item was about JJ's sister seeing this uh, jazz musician. Oh, yeah. They said that he was, because it's 1957, so they said he was this, like, marijuana uh, smoking communist. Yeah. Marijuana and communist. Oh, my God. Could it get anywhere? Oh, my God. Oh. So I have Otis meets Rita, and I don't know who Otis is. Okay, and I don't know who Rita is. So <laughs> Otis, <me> out, Aaron. <laughs> All right, this was a little. It's a little blurry on my end too. So I apologize for the crude terms in which my brain has remembered has filed this information away. But this is how it filed it away. Otis is an older white dude, and Rita. Is the cigarette girl? Oh, okay. And the I cigarette it was Sally girl. Rita. Sally's oh, no. the secretary. Yeah. Okay. okay. So that scene oh, where this I gets, this is really creepy. Yeah. Okay. So this the earlier didn't Tony Curtis set up a booty call with Rita? And he said, "If you're around, Darren's it, Darren's boss from Bewitched." Okay. Yeah. Okay, I don't. I I I watched Idiot. Bewitched, but I can't be like that. So Otis is Mister Whatever from Bewitched. Okay, so Rita is at Sidney Falco's place because he said that he was going to be around at two in the morning. Because I was like, these people stay out really late. Yeah. Um, and so she said, yeah. So she is already at Sidney Falco's place. Sydney knows that she's going to be there. There's something with Otis. I forget who, who Otis is. Like, Otis has something to do with newspapers or something. 
he carries a lot of weight with um with JJ somehow. Okay. I don't know. But basically so Otis has something that Sydney wants and what Otis wants is some female companionship for the evening. And Sydney with says with Rita who has large bazongas. And Sydney knows that Rita is at his place cuz they prearranged it. So Sydney it's not a great guy, but he's a, a problem solver for his own problems. He's like supply and demand. There's a man who wants female companionship and I have a female in my apartment. So he sees nothing wrong with whisking off Otis, taking it into the room. And, you know, Rita's waiting there for Sydney. And in comes in Otis, and Otis says, don't I recognize you from somewhere? And Rita immediately knows what's up. It's like you... problematic. This was a very problematic... You're basically pimping me out right now. Yeah. Buddy, like you want me to entertain this fellow uh, for you. And we're not talking singing opera. Yeah, and and she doesn't want to do it, and so she then doesn't. Sydney has to t- like talks her into it. Says, "Look, again, the answer to every question is money. You got a son in military school, right?" And she's like, "I do." And he's like, "All all I'm saying is you just have to like drink a few drinks and just you know." Be some companionship with the guy. Just get through it, and like, everybody man, will be happy. This is this is highly problematic. It and was. It would, and you know, if you want to, if you're in sex work and that's your th- business, you have decided that that's your business. But this right. was this sex work was sort was being foisted upon this woman. It was she she really didn't see an out. She was being oh, pretty much thing. like forced into it. It was a uh, it was a hard. This woman's gonna take one for the team, and they will. Uh, and as like, in hard, she took one for the team. Yeah, because Otis, picture Otis, and that's what you're picturing. You're not yeah. picturing Brad Pitt. No, this was the, at this point, he was an old man. And, and so when he was in Bewitched, he was even older. I'm just saying, Otis is in desperate need of a rebrand, if ever a name was. Because oh, yeah. I could see there in the next five years, there being a young, a young up-and-comer whippersnapper with just eight pack. And his name is Otis. And you're like, Otis. <laughs> yeah. But right but now. Then, yeah. Otis, Ew, just oh, just I just think lumpy oatmeal. Yeah, and at, at one point Sydney says he's gonna help you. How many drinks does it take? Oh, it, oh, oh man. man, this was so problematic. And so evidently Otis was gonna publish the thing about Steve being a marijuana smoking communist. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. So Sydney calls JJ and says it's all good and JJ looks in on his sleeping sister because evidently they lived together. It was just it was just very sort of creepy. Oh. Uh, at this point, I believe that this is the point where I'm start to think to myself, why 
why isn't he just her father? Why did they, when they were scripting this, say their brother and sister? Why isn't it just, this is Burt Lancaster, this is his daughter, and he's very protective of his daughter. I'm thinking it was so that Burt Lancaster couldn't be old enough to have had a daughter her age. You know, that whole, the whole hype of how old Burt was and... What anyway. was that hype? I don't because looking at this, I don't know how old Burt Lancaster is in it. Like you I'm looking at this, I'm not. I'm he's he's a man in his prime, so I'm thinking he's in his forties. She could have had a daughter, and yeah, because she's nineteen. Yeah, so I'm just I in my head, I think what like what is the reason why it was no? This is brother and sister because father and daughter. I would because have no at, problem with at that with. point. Father, father having feelings for his daughter was was less bad than brother having feelings <laughs> for his daughter. The father caring about who his, his oh, daughter no. married was like oh. no one will. What is oh. this bullshit? No one's gonna believe this. Okay, next day, Falco gets the paper. He buys the paper. He reads it. It's the Globe. He calls JJ's secretary. Otis's column is in the paper. Looks at early takes on the column. Then we meet Herbie Temple, who is Temple. a comedian. What? Where and is this? He, uh, and oh. Sydney wants to be his publicist. These were the two guys. This guy, he was like in a kind of one of those like straw hat things. That you would always see, yeah. like, carnival guys, like, carnival costume things. Oh, yeah, this was the scene. This scene had a lot of great lines, but... What was the purpose of it in the film? I think the purpose of it was to show that he... Just how much he... Um, Sidney Falco was reviled as, as a uh, publicist. Like, how bad his business was hurting. Because he wasn't able, so this was this guy, and he's not famous by any means, but he's, and he's older, so you know that it's not like he's an up-and-comer, and Sidney Falco wants him to be his publicist, but he doesn't want to be, because he's like, no, you suck at publicity. Right, because he had gone to JJ's secretary, and she may or may not have slipped to Sydney, the list of things that JJ was going to write about next. And this Herbie Temple was somebody he was going to write about next. So uh, Sydney so needed business that then he went to this comedian and said, hey, I can be your publicist. I can get you in the paper tomorrow, knowing that JJ was already putting him in the paper tomorrow. This is the quote I'm going to say about you, knowing that JJ was already going to use that quote. And so you're going to hire me to be your publicist, thinking I made this happen when it was going to happen without me. Well, that's smart on JJ's part. I mean, on on Sydney's Sydney's part. part. Yes. Yeah. And because Sydney eyelashes, Falco had already schmoozed the secretary to give him inside info. Ah. Okay, so now we're at Falco's office. And Steve and Frank, 
who is the father of Falco, come in to talk about the sneer that happened about Steve Dallas, that he's a marijuana-smoking communist. Is it his uncle or his father? Frank is the uncle of Sidney Falco. Yeah, okay, because you said the father. I'm sorry. Yeah, so his uncle comes in, yeah, and he didn't, the uncle was like, Steve, don't go see him. But Steve is like, I am a man. And I will face this man one-on-one. Man to man. Mano a mano. If this had been uh, 200 years prior, these two would have dueled. It would have been a duel. You You have taken umbrage of my manhood. And the duel would be in New Jersey because everything's legal in New Jersey. Everything's legal in New Jersey. So then Steve calls Susie to tell her there's going to be a call coming out about me. It's not true. Blah, 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 blah. So Sydney calls JJ. Just here in a huff. Get over here. Doesn't want it to get. JJ is angry because he doesn't want it to come back on him that the smear about Steve is, is because of J.J. He wants it to be other people who are making the smear about Steve so he can break up his sister and the person she intends to be but a lover with. J.J., there's only one problem here. There's only one person who is against this union, this courtship. And it's now J.J. one person is you, J.J. Yeah. So who else do you have to blame? Because you're a freak. Okay, I wrote at this point that uh, Susie seems quite fragile. She's seemed quite fragile yeah, through the whole thing. because she's wet blanket. She she is not only a wet blanket. She is a wet blanket made of noodles that are overcooked. They she's are not an overcooked wet blanket of noodles. Yeah. No al dente. So Susie just says to JJ, I want you to get his job back because he's been fired from the quartet, the Chico Quartet, because he's now a communist. Who cares about the smoking marijuana? And she says, I just want you to get his job back. And JJ says, I like this independent you. Yeah, because Susie comes in with a little bit of sass. Steve must be good for you. Yeah, ooh. And then doesn't he say like the creepiest line ever here? Probably. This is the line that I had to rewind three times because I'm like, what the fuck did this man just say to his sister? And then I had to figure out how to put the subtitles on because I still couldn't understand it. So obviously it went right over my head. He it's the closing this whole scene where I believe he gets back on the phone to say, Oh, it it was a mistake that he I believe he is of the utmost character, this man. And then he like hangs up and he looks at his sister, noodle wet blanket and says, don't tell any. I don't know why I went into James Mason there. (laughs) You did, but it's perfect. Don't tell anyone that I am will always be attached to your apron strings. (gasps) What? Oh, no wonder I ignored. I was just like, uh, huh? 
Oh, so creepy. Uh, again, and then out loud I said, why aren't you her father? <laughs> really? Even because that would have been that less would creepy. More sense. It would it would be like uh uh but Without you would kind of understand innuendo. it. Yeah, but you would kind of understand it because obviously yeah. it's 1957, he has to be a widower. So, you know that he put everything for his daughter. And then he's going to be like, I'm sorry, babe. I'm attached to your apron strings. You know, I'm just I just want to look out for you. It's kind of like the way you said it was kind of creepy. But you understand that as her older brother, though, it's so creepy. Oh my God. It's like, what? I'm attached to your chastity belt string. And then, okay. and then you wonder, wait a second. This guy is making so much money. He's so famous. Women have to be throwing themselves at him because they because you would think you don't see that anywhere. Exactly. Because he has the ability to make you a star. So there are people like women and there are probably men, too, honestly, but it's 1957, so we can't really see that. But you know that there are those people. They are just going, throwing themselves at him because they just want to be famous. And he is, he's the a gatekeeper of fame. But and he's no. ignoring it all, like the blonde bombshell, like the blonde, the the senator brought. Well, the senator was, anyway. Yeah, you're just mm. like, wait a this is... Oh, man, this is, like, creepy, Lancaster. Yeah, innuendo. Well, J.G.'s getting ready to go on the air because not only is he a, a public, is he a columnist, but he also has a radio show. No, oh, a television show. And um, Falco says uh, that Steve is full of juice and vinegar. And... He's a firecracker waiting for a match. So Steve goes in to see Falco. And Susie wants a minute with Steve. They go all go in to see JJ. Uh, JJ says nothing. There's nothing. Uh, actually, Steve says there's nothing to the smear. I'm not a communist or a marijuana smoker. <laughs> At least he didn't inhale. <laughs> no, this dude's not a marijuana smoker. And JJ says, just be good to my sister. And then they start arguing about who's responsible for the smear. And Frank, the uncle, who is the manager of Steve, is trying to keep Steve from getting angry. He Just don't get angry because that's what JJ wants you to do. So the sister sees you have this anger issue. And he says, Susie and I are in love. We want to get married. And Susie is saying to her brother, just tell me whatever you think. And then Susie runs away because she sees that Steve's getting angry. And, you know, she's she's really she's extremely like there's too much that she's got to deal with. So she runs away. <laughs> she's just, she's being a, she's a, she's just a woman and you've overwhelmed her circuitry and she exactly. just can't take it anymore. So she's circuit board ah, is overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. My brother, or my boyfriend or my boyfriend or my brother. It's Seriously? too much. Ah. Oh and God. going back to, she is, a blanket of wet noodles. 
And she's a mess. So Steve does a royal job of telling off JJ. Oh. And he leaves. Yeah. Steve just lays down the law. And you're just like, man, Kyle Chandler would have nailed this. Steve, not so much. So then we see Susie crying. And she says that she'll never see Steve again. Oh, but before that, didn't Sydney counsel JJ and warn and say, look, you, you're, you've already, you know, you've gone and you're getting, you've said that you're going to get this guy his job back. This guy is all integrity. He's like, it's the darnest thing I've ever seen. But this guy is so much about integrity. He's not going to let that stand. And so that's why he called to get the guy the job back because he knew, because he was told by Sydney that this guy has too much integrity and he's never going to want his job back. And then he's going to look in Susie's eyes like he's the asshole and it's perfect. You're going to win. Mm-hmm. And so it, it plays out exactly how Sydney says. And so, you know, Susie leaves. I believe that Steve tells off. Uh, JJ. At first, JJ kisses her on the cheek, and it's a really weird kiss. Yeah, you're already like, this is uncomfortable. And then, and then uh, he totally tells him off, but tells him off in like, doesn't curse him out, but just uses his, just the truth basically, and just cuts him down the size about, you know, you think that, like, people like me think that you're slime. You think that you're rich and, and all and powerful and everything, but there's so many people out in America who are like me and think that you're disgusting and a slime ball. And then he's just like, peace out. And then Sydney goes to JJ, yo, my man, that worked perfectly. So, the next column is going to be all about my people, right? And but no, JJ is is. Excuse me, did you hear what that guy just said to me? I was gonna let everything go under the bridge, but that guy just told me off, and I'm not letting that shit slide. I'm gonna destroy that motherfucker. Right, right. And Sydney goes, why are you going to give him a reason to get back together? Never punch down. I mean, we've done what we needed to do. They're apart now. So don't go and give him a reason to get back together. And and JJ is like, he didn't criticize me. He criticized my readers. (laughs) Yeah, JJ then turns it into, no, this isn't me having my little feelings hurt. This is... I'm doing this for my readers. Right. I'm like, man, JJ, you would love Fox News. Isn't he already on there? And so JJ says to Sydney, hey, dude, don't give away your gangplank. Which is, you know, who's going to do my column for me while Susie and I go away for a few months? Oh, and then Sydney says... Oh, no, no, Ma. The reason he, because he, so he's so mad that Dallas just told him off. Steve Dallas just told him off that he goes and calls Kello, the police officer. And Sydney doesn't want any part of that because he's like, whoa, whoa, I am sleazy, but I am sleazy to a point. I have a line and this sleaziness will not cross that line at this time right now. Truth be told, I thought Sydney was talking about death. 
I thought he was talking about killing Steve. I kind of was. I just knew it wasn't good for Steve. Yeah. So, um, JJ says to Steve, well, if you turn the other way and overlook this, like, here's here's what you get from my plan. Um, I'm going to be away with my sister, which red flag, like what, what weird. Okay. So while I'm away helping her recuperate over her heartbreak, weird. Why don't you write my column for me? And then Sydney's like, what? Because that's big time. He that's would, all, yeah. You know, that's, he, has, he finally has power. That's that's basically Steven Spielberg himself knocking on my door to be like, hey, you want to direct this movie? Yeah. You're like, are you kidding? All right. So, you know, I don't really know what this cop's going to do to this motherfucker, but this is cool. I'm it don't good. matter. I don't really like them. They're wet blankets. Huh. They I don't really care what happens to either of these two kids. That's what so Sydney's we cut saying. to Susie and Steve in some kind of a diner. Yes. And she says that the whole situation frightened her and that she's weak and she can't change. And Steve says, are you trying to say goodbye? And she says, I'll hang around to plead. Uh, Steve says he'll hang around to plead his case. And Susie is like, I need to let you go so he doesn't harm you anymore. Because if we stay together, JJ's going to absolutely destroy you. So I'm willing to let you go so you can have your own life. Yeah, I wasn't really paying attention to this. I was looking around and I was like, there's no people of color in this scene. This is all white people. Okay, I got the white people. So she says, I can't let him harm you anymore. And he says, well, it's your brother who's saying goodbye, but I won't give up on you. I mean, this is as a hard scene to get through, Ma, because it's 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 just two people who just don't have it, and you're just watching two people. Yeah, it was two wet blankets talking. And a major motion picture, just going like, man, you two, probably great people, great personalities. Ah, you just don't have it. So she, Susie, goes up to Frank, his manager, and says. Um, take care of him, take care of Steve. And she kisses Steve and she walks off and, and Steve walks with Frank. And then he goes, Frank, look back, see if she's still standing there. And she was still standing there. Next scene, we're at a jazz club and Falco is there. I believe the piano player is black in this scene. I think he is. And Steve says, you know, I'm not feeling well after this set, I'm going to leave. And uh, Frank tells Falco, Frank tells Falco, hey, look, they're broken up. It's it's over. Mr. Hunsucker is a big man and he wins all the marbles. But the police are there to arrest Steve. Oh, so I think I read that Falco has marijuana cigarettes and plants them in Steve's jacket. Yes, you see him plant them and you see him plant something in Steve's jacket. Yes, yeah, so he he had to do some work. He had to do some dirty work in order to get his column. Which he said he didn't want to do, but once he got a column, then well, okay. It was like a column. Hmm. All right. 
So Sydney's at the bar. He makes a phone call, which is all uh, phone booths at this point. And Herbie Temple shows back up. Uh, the operator at 21 um, says that JJ wants to see you at his house. So Sydney arrives. The door is unlocked. He goes in. There's nobody at JJ's house. Susie's on the balcony. She's going to throw herself off. She's yeah. just going to kill herself. She's just, it's just all too much for our Susie. Yeah. Um, I'm And she says, I'm sorry about Steve. I'm sorry about my brother. I'm sorry about you. She's sorry gonna, about everything. And you're going to be sorry because you're the man who drove his beloved sister to suicide. So she locks him out of her bedroom and she goes onto the balcony and he's screaming, Susie, don't do anything stupid. And poor Susie doesn't realize that the balconies connect. Yeah. So the balcony from the living room connects to the balcony from the bedroom and he grabs her just as she's jumping off. So Susie is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Not our first clue. No. Just then JJ comes in. He's put, Sydney has put Susie back on her bed and he's there. And, and, he, and I and like, he, I like, I just like Tony Curtis in this role. He's just like, are you crazy? What the hell? Like, what's wrong with you? And JJ comes in and sees Susie on the bed and Sydney right there. So he's assuming Sydney's trying to take advantage of Susie. Get your hands off my sister. Get your hands off my sister. And um, and Sydney's trying to say, look, it's good. I came as soon as I did. Uh, I got your message. And JJ's saying, what message? And Sydney's saying she was trying to kill herself. And JJ's going, is that why you put your hands on my sister? And he's like, and yeah, I put my hands on my and your sister to tackle her so she didn't take a header off the building. You're welcome. But JJ didn't listen. He beat Sydney up. Well, no, they have this weird thing. Like, uh, this got really weird. Like, there's so many weird scenes. But then it's the sister is like, because Eddie or Sydney says, hey, tell your brother that you were gonna, uh, attempting suicide. You don't even have to say that I saved your life, but you are going to kill yourself just now. You're going to jump off this balcony, weren't you? And then um, the uh, JJ's not like, you know, he's not believing it and stuff. And then so Sydney's like, all right, well, that's not working. All right. Then he's like, um, Susie, guess who planted all the stuff about your boyfriend, Steve? And so then the two, then Susie and JJ are looking at each other. And then JJ says, well, I believe that you weren't trying to kill yourself if you believe that I didn't plant that information. And both of them know that the other one is lying. And they, but they yet both agree and this weird thing. And Sydney's like, what the hell is going on? This, this shit is weird. Yeah. And then doesn't JJ or doesn't Sydney leave? And then doesn't JJ call Kello? 
Yeah, because because they were all in it to get Kello to arrest Steve for the marijuana, which automatically makes him a communist. Yeah, but and so that we see Steve and we see the police. This is before that because they Steve got his ass kicked and he's in the hospital, and that's why what's and so Susie went to go see Steve and they wouldn't let him her see Steve in the hospital. And so that's why she called Sydney to come over because she's distraught. Right. And so then that's why um, they have that weird scene where it's like, oh, I know that you weren't trying to kill yourself. Just like, you know, I didn't have anything to do with your boyfriend getting his ass kicked. Right. And And then then Susie's packing her bag. Yeah. So and then Kello... Uh, JJ calls and tells Kello about Sydney, and so Sydney gets his ass kicked. Right, he gets yeah, and then the police pick Sydney up. Right, and then but then the sister packs her bag and basically says, "You're right, I was trying to kill myself because I would rather die than to live with you." And then she walks out into the sunlight in a wool coat instead of the fur coat. And the end. Yeah, and I'm like, that's this movie? Yeah. That's Sweet Smell of Success? It was. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes for this? Well, I wasn't that impressed with it myself. I was not impressed at all. I think it is just, it's worth a watch just for the the things that we mentioned, but as far as 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. And and it was on the 100 best screenwriting plays, well, wasn't it? Well, yes, it was. And that I kind of understand because of the lines of dialogue and stuff. But it number yeah. 35, JJ is number 35 in... The top villains, AFI's 100 top, like, what? No. No. In Barry Levinson's diner, there's a character that says nothing but lines from this film. And in Breaking Bad, there's a episode called The Cats in the Bag and the the Bags in the River. And Vince Gilligan, it's been cited that this is his favorite film of all time. And well, then it was, I'm missing something. And it was also played during, like, in Rain Man. There's a scene where this is on the TV. Wow. Okay. I like Tony Curtis in this movie. I enjoyed watching him. I had yeah. no idea what the fuck Burt Lancaster was doing. Like, his, who he was. But I enjoyed that he was doing something. It was weird as fuck to me, <laughs> his character. But I enjoyed that he was doing something. I love the cinematography and the way it looked. I liked the music. There were some music cues that made me LOL. I don't think that was on purpose, but hey, it added to my enjoyment. There you go. But I don't understand how you can be like, all of this because this guy just doesn't want his sister to marry the most clean cut you know anybody, that this guy anybody anybody 
this guy is going to put down his guitar and he's going to go become an accountant for that woman and raise a family. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's the most... There's nothing wrong with this guy. He's Mr. Integrity and Mr. Clean Cut. It's like, what's your problem? JJ, who are you? Yeah. That's how... I mean, I was like, really? That's the... I was, I was waiting for the big twist. Ah. The big plot twist or something? No, nah, it didn't come. And the movie gets its title because at one point later in the film, uh, I believe after, I believe after he planted the marijuana cigarettes on uh, old Steve, and he's uh, Sydney is at another bar establishment and he's got all his buddies around him and he's drinking and he gives a toast to his new cologne sweet smell of the sweet smell of success yeah and I was like oh that's where the line came from okay well JJ was based on Walter Winchell yes and Walter Winchell was a newspaper radio gossip commentator who was famous for exploiting famous Americans. And he was feared and admired, so he's much like Harvey Levin, like TMZ. Um, but Winchell aligned himself with M- Joseph McCarthy, and his career ended in humiliation. Excellent, as it should, as hopefully somebody else's will. So, also... Um, because he was Walter Winchell, so Orson Welles was considered to play J.J. Mm-hmm. And the director, McKendrick, his choice was Hume Cronin because of the resemblance to Walter Winchell. Oh. Yes. I also heard that Frank Sinatra was considered to play J.J. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my trivia about... The director of photography, James Wong Howe. It might be Howie because it's H-O-W-E. And who knows how that's pronounced correctly. Right. Um, he was married to a white woman, I believe in the 1930s, but it wasn't officially recognized until like the 1940s. Oh, wow. He had to deal with a lot of racism. He couldn't become a United States citizen until 1943. Because that's when the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed. Because in 1882, federal law was signed by Chester A. Arthur, prohibiting all immigration from Chinese laborers. This was building on the 1875 Page Act, which banned Chinese women from immigrating to the United States. This was the first law to prevent all members of a specific ethnic or national group from immigrating. The Immigration Act of 1952 abolished direct racial barriers, and the Immigration Act of 1965 abolished national origins formula. And the national origins formula was in place from 1921 to 1965. And this was used to keep Protestant Northwestern Europeans as the largest and therefore strongest group in America. I like to refer to it as a finder's keeper's law, if you will. Except there was nothing to be found because the people who were originally here all got killed off or 
uh, rounded up into reservations, and now there's no proof of where they live, so they can't vote. Nice one, America. Exactly. Very cool. I, I just thought that was interesting immigration history. Yay for immigration. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're going to celebrate a man, America putting a man on the moon, let's also look at the warts. That's right. I mean, people who were originally here have to prove their, that they were here. Motherfucker, I wasn't anywhere else. <laughs> it's what oh. they should get their they should get their DNA ancestry back. And when it comes right. with ninety eight percent, like I'm I'm not just be like <laughs> drop the mic. Oh, uh, let's compare yours and yours is all from a the entire globe and like nothing in America and they're like all right here. <laughs> for like, uh, entire European and oh, uh, mm -hmm. okay. I, uh, I guess you can have a say. <laughs> I can thank you. This is my land. It is not your land. That's right. This is my land. It was mine before you moved me to the desert. <laughs> this, this whole is what, it's just funny how they, like if you look at the years of these immigration things, 1882, 1875, you know, it's basically like, oh, we got here first. Yeah. No one else can come. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're, you're no different. What makes you any different? <laughs> you, you yeah, you came from somewhere else because you... Why? Oh, my family wanted a better life. Yeah. Ah, get in line! <laughs> and, then you, and then you have the first Americans who are like, we had a better life! Yeah. <laughs> Thanks! Guys, which is why I say we get rid of Columbus Day. Take that holiday... Move it to the first Tuesday in every November and make election day a holiday. Yep. And then there would be like crowds and stuff. What other? But you can only have? have the day off if you actually vote. <sighs> there were one, two, three, four, five people of color I counted. Let's go through them. One, a black guy working as the help in the background of a bar scene. Yeah. One, Chico Hamilton, the drummer in the band. Correct. One, piano player. Yes. One, when they made the call to the Hunsucker house, um, there was an Asian man, a man who looked of Asian persuasion as um, the a help kind of, of person. Course. And then another black person guy who was the basis. So there's no women of color in here at all. And one, mm -mm. two, three, four. So we have five people of color. All of them, anytime they were seen, was in the background and as a member, uh, like, you know, in the background, help. Subservient. Sub thank you, subservient. Um, 1957. Yeah, 1957. So, Burt Lancaster, okay, so, Le remember Layman from before, how I was like, sound of music, the king and I, West Side Story. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He left near the completion of the script, and Burt Lancaster blamed Lehman's withdrawal due to illness for the film's box office failure. Because when this movie came out, it's like it had poor reviews in the previews, and then it did not do well at the box office, which I thought was interesting. Cause I was like, huh, I'm with those people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would not have told my friends to go see it. No, not at all. I was, in fact, I was disappointed. Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis. It's a film noir. I was very excited. And then if I had known about this layman guy and you had read off his credentials, I would have been like, what? So, um, yeah, I guess that's it. That's all I had for it. That's all I have. So there you have it. Sweet smell of success. Sweet smell of success. You might not want to actually go with the, the whole renting of it, but it's interesting to listen to us talk about it. This is the perfect podcast episode because now you can, if you if it ever comes up, you can uh, contribute to a cocktail conversation and go, yes, Susie is a wet blanket actress. I know about this film. You don't have to say I saw it. I know about this mm-hmm. film. Let me tell you what I think. And everybody's going to think, my God, you are so cultured. You're now, welcome. Next week, Ooh. you're going to be uh, viewing, you're going to be hearing about a film that you actually want to view. Oh, you do. It's a it's a nineteen sixty two film. Uh huh. It is a classic. I like having to guess these hints, please. Based on a novel Based that on. became a classic. Black Beauty. Nineteen sixty two. Nineteen sixty two. We're gonna we're gonna have a new person we haven't done before. I don't think we've done him before. Great Expectations. Gregory Peck. Great. Are we going to kill a mockingbird? Yes, we are. Interesting. Yes, we are, damn it. We're going to go with, oh, my God, next week. I mean, I think that hasn't everyone seen this in school? Probably not. I did not see it in school. I, well, yeah, because you were alive when oh it came God, out. Oh, my God. Ageism is creeping into our podcast. I saw this when I was in school. What grade were you? I think I saw it in eighth grade. I was going to say eighth grade. And I'm going to say history class. No. Because you had a really good history teacher. Or was it, who did you have to read House of Dice Dreer for? That was seventh grade. Oh, okay. English class. I think this was... I could be wrong. I think so. Eighth grade. I don't think it was ninth grade. Well, we're going to do it because it's a freaking classic, people. It's about time we get back to the freaking classics. And we need, we, I think, well, see, next week we'll be after Election Day. And I just feel like we need a, a feel-good movie. Well, is this a feel-good movie now? Meaning? Well, the first time that we experienced this, this movie, and then when we read the book, an old Atticus Finch. 
I'm not, yeah, because I read the second book and it wasn't, no. no I, I, I never read the second book no, because I was, don't. I was don't. like, but I already know, cat's out of the bag. Atticus isn't who we thought he was. Atticus, according to this movie, is still who we thought he was. Okay. We're not going to be overshadowed by something that shouldn't have been published because she didn't even want it published. Then why didn't she burn it? I guess because she spent so much time on it. She couldn't bring herself to burn it. Well, she should have burned it. She should have. <laughs> I just... Such a disappointment. I just picture Catherine Kerner, Keener. Where are you going there? I'm, 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 I'm on the high of To Kill a Mockingbird. You cannot take me down. All right, I'm not trying to. I'm just saying that I'm. That's the elephant that's in the room. God damn you! It's not goddamn me. It's 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 just what happens. It's it well, actually truth. it's it, everyone's childhood. It's what life. happens. It's life. Something it's that life. you that you really liked, and then you realize that was that's highly problematic now. Highly problematic, and it takes you down to a new low. Yeah. We're going to go out on a high with To Kill a Mockingbird 1962. <laughs> what are, is this the last podcast going out on the high? There would be other highs. <laughs> Jeez. I don't know, but we'll see how Tuesday goes. <laughs> I mean, look, we survived two years ago. Did we? <laughs> Have we survived? I mean, we're enduring. We're we're all st we're still here. <laughs> I got to tell you that I think Hendrix Gin's stock has climbed a lot in the last two years. Well, everyone has bought more. Yeah, <laughs> everyone has just stocked up and bought more and been like self-medicating. Yeah, I'm still here, motherfucker. Okay. Okay, well, I, I, I'm i going with To Kill a Mockingbird. I like it. All right, then. Oh, you know what? There was also another tidbit about Tony Curtis. Go ahead. Apparently, he said that from the top of his submarine in Japan, he witnessed the Japanese surrendering. Now, that's. That's what? just what he says. He says this was a highlight of his life. So he also was drinking a lot of Hendrix gin? <laughs> yeah. Apparently. Okay, okay Tony. I'm not going to doubt you, eyelashes. Hey, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service, eyelashes. Eyelashes. And we'll see you next week with the Kill a Mockingbird. Bye-bye.